We've all heard things and seen things that disturb our soul and our hearts. I believe what stops us from saying or doing something isn't fear. It's just not really being aligned with our values. But it is scary if you're waiting for the moment where the fear abates. Good luck. It's always going to be there. From 7CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruin, and you're in the CTO studio. I have waited so long for these three people to be in the CTO studio with me. So I am delirious. That's how I do intros. So I want to welcome the three of you. Eric, you're recently acquired by Active Campaign, Postmark, and your role now is the boss of the boss. Head of engineering, comma, postmark at Active Campaign. yeah. Uh, okay. At least it's a comma and not a semicolon. That's awesome. <laughs> Aaron is the founder of Anthropolicy. Thank you so much for joining. You and I have become fast friends in the last few weeks. Thanks to Eric for introducing us. I feel a very deep connection with you, Aaron. So thank you for being with us. I really, really am excited for what today is going to bring. And then Kathy, probably fast best friend over the last couple of years, just ever since Vegas. We've talked about everything that happened in Vegas. It's quite refreshing. <laughs> Kathy is the, is it the VP technology? VP, yep, VP of technology. At? Ad hoc. VP of technology at Ad hoc. I wanted to say apostrophe and I'm like, dude, seriously? <laughs> That was years ago. But Kathy, so wonderful to have you with us. I've been talking to so, so, so many CTOs and technical organizations and the issue of diversity, the issue of inclusion, psychological safety, people who are highly aware of where things are and people who are blissfully status quoing things and like, hey, I treat everybody equally and I'm just cool with the hiring pipeline and I'm cringing a little bit because it's just the system producing the system's people, you know? And so I want to just get really into the three of yours' experience with diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging. And just here, top of your mind, how would you define or think about this aspect inside of your organizations. So Eric, obviously, you're at Active Campaign. Kathy, you're at Ad Hoc. And then Aaron, who's, who's a culture broker, goes into companies. And actually, Aaron, you probably see a lot of different stories as well. With that sort of confabulation, can we just get going? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I've worked with Aaron over the last six months. He's helped me grow on this tremendously and really helped me translate DEI to how work changes on a day-to-day basis and sort of helping us get away from a checkbox approach. And so Active Campaign does a lot for DEI, but insofar as the work with Aaron, the challenge for me was, and what he has helped me with is translating, how do we change how we work? on a day-by-day basis so that we are an inclusive team where a diverse group of harmless humans feel belonging and feel like, yeah, this is me. 
I'm here. I belong here. I'm welcomed here. That's been the challenge we've been working on. And, and I just love that perspective as opposed to sort of doing the training, then you're done, then you go back to how you do your work. Absolutely. And I think I kind of danced around this a little bit, but the whole D, E, and I, it's almost like that phrase has now become something that has conveniently been categorized as a organizational to-do. When I love what you just said, Eric, is really it is about that day-to-day behavior inside of the organization. To supply a little onto that, the one way I think about DEI is I think primarily about inclusion and equity. Inclusion and equity are the things that we put into practice in our daily lives. How are we inclusive within the organization? How do we show ourselves as inclusive to candidates as they come in? How are we inclusive of their differences as we interview them? And how do we ensure there's equity across the board, people within same skills, getting paid the same, getting treated the same? Those are the two aspects of this that we put into play daily. And if those things are in play daily, then diversity can just be the measurement or the metric about how we measure how inclusive and how much equity we bring into the organization. I think too often as orgs, when you get to that checkbox perspective, the checkbox is often all skewed to the diversity side. Oh, I have X number of women, X number of LGBTQ, X number of people of color coming into my organization. Yay, DE and I, totally good, right? But all they've done is drive a metric, a number. They haven't actually brought inclusivity and equity into the organization. So if we primarily focus on the E and the I, the D will come. That's how I look at it. Love that. Aaron. Thank you for having me on the show, Etienne. I've been looking forward to it for quite a while. And thank you, Eric, for those kind words. And it's wonderful to meet you, Kathy. Yeah, for me, D, E, and I, they're three words. They don't really mean much to me. They don't travel well. And then we can push it. It could be D, E, and I, and B if you want to have the belonging you could have JEDI, justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. The acronyms are about as broad and profligate as the work. And I find that traditional views of diversity, equity, inclusion themselves are an inequity with no true consensus, no true standard, no true oversight, no true certification. I'm not a DEI practitioner. I am a human rights practitioner. And my background is in international human rights, where we do have consensus, we do have standards, we do have approaches, we do have track records. And I find that bringing a human rights lens to North American DEI can really help solidify this lens of DEI and change it from just being three words that will have three different meanings across audiences and communities, right? I just heard Kathy's lens and how she views the E and I driving D. And I've heard people see the D drives E and I. I've heard the I drives E and D. Fascinating to me. Ultimately, whatever acronym, whatever approach we're using, I focus on behavior. What are the push-pull factors to transform individuals and organizations in their behavior towards these issues. 
So I'm less concerned about compliance and box checking. Training has its place. I'm not against training. I also know that in North America, we've been training on these issues close to five decades with very little to show for it. So to the extent that training gets applied in the lived experience, I am here for that. I actually am quite skeptical of out-of-the-box, one-size-fits-all training experiments to shift behaviors towards institutional oppression, towards right-sizing inequity, or finding new ways to include more and more people into the sector, in this case, tech. I love that idea of like being skeptical of training. I feel like out-of-the-box training really just defines the line between like what's ethical and not ethical about how to behave around DEI, but it doesn't actually help us understand how to ingrain it into our day-to-day being. It just tells us which lines not to cross. Cross that line, then, you know, there'll be some HR action or whatever, right? But it doesn't help us like actually build the personal habits about how to build this within the culture of the organization. Yeah, I really like that, Kathy. Thank you for that. I do believe there is this element of compliance that lets people know where the bright lines are. Those are important. And for me, those land as sort of an HR function, which I don't place this work in the purview of HR in my practice. I think that when we have the opportunity to provide containers of experience for the training, then we can start to see an iterative process by which people can change their behaviors. And so in my work, I'm a former classroom teacher, you know, I'm a former veteran, I'm a former diplomat. I've been trained to many standards on many levels, but it was only when I actually started practicing what educators call project or experiential learning, taking the learning that was dripped into my veins through compliance, and then applying it out into the world in real world situations. That's when I find that the training actually can encode on our spirit and help transform behavior. I love that you mentioned containers. So you and I have been working together. Together, we've been doing this culture audit. And one of the things that you taught me through the practice of doing the work is the power of these safe containers where we can have these conversations that can get sticky, but know at the end of it that everything is going to be fine. And that's something that I've been working on trying to translate into my team, a software delivery team. How do we find a way to introduce enough psychological safety and trust as part of being a software team so that when there is conflict or there is need for change, People will choose to have the conversation and be brave because there's interpersonal discomfort there when you bring them up. And I think unless you're intentional about creating an environment where that is appreciated, tolerated, valued, it can be really hard to have those conversations. Can you give us a real world example of containers, like what you're talking about here, so that we can kind of put it in our context? Yeah, sure. So for the work that Aaron and I have been doing, It started with me going through a cultural audit to sort of, as he says, unearth my values. As part of that, we had a lot of one-on-one conversations to 
talk through what is important to me and why I believe what I believe. And, you know, he's great at challenging that. So that'd be an example. Another container that I'm working on with my team is a new kind of meeting where we meet together and we don't talk about project work. We don't talk about software. The purpose of the meeting is to simply grow stronger relations so that in those other meetings, we can tolerate more interpersonal discomfort and have disagreements and different viewpoints. And my theory is, if we can get comfortable with this on these topics, that helps us allow other DNI related topics to surface too. On the other hand, if we can't even get comfortable with things that are directly related to our work, then I, I worry that DNI will be sort of checkboxy training like, and then we'll just sort of, oh, well, that's, that's uncomfortable. I don't want to deal with that. So if, I'm, if I put the idea of containers into my thinking in my head, what I'm hearing you say is it's values, defining your values, defining the values of how you want the team to operate together, the working agreements within the team, who owns what, so that there's clarity of the boundaries of how you work together within that unit so that you can be trusting and vulnerable and hold each other accountable within that container. Is that an accurate description of kind of like how you think about that? I'm going to let Aaron respond because I learned this from him. (laughs) (laughs) The idea of containers is just a way to think of spaces and places and that we have the ability as humans to fix, to create and address an affinity group, an ERG, an employee resource group. That's a container. That's a container that can contain certain activities and experiences for an affinity group. It would be people who share a commonality coming together for a specific purpose. What's interesting to me in this work and what I think traditional DEI struggles with is that it's a little counterintuitive. If you're entering a space of equity unprepared or unwilling to engage with discomfort, the growth will not occur. So many of us humans are taught and trained and reared from an early age to avoid that which disturbs, disrupts, or insults us. And like a stretch, I'll use a lot of sports metaphors. I am a son of a coach. Like a stretch, you do want to feel it. I want to feel in my body that I am moving in such a way, but I don't want to injure myself. This work does not have to hurt. It often does, sadly. I would argue because there's not enough joy in the work and then not enough opportunity to express one's values. So the container work around equity gets to be very tricky when it comes to psychological safety. I am in favor of psychological safety. I also know the trope of psychological safety has de-developed equity in North America. It has kept majority culture, particularly whiteness, from fully engaging. And in my experience, when a client or a participant requires full psychological safety in order to participate That actually is a flag for me. It's very difficult to do this work without engaging in discomfort. What I try to do is to create a scaffolding, to create an architecture where you have a baseline psychological safety for sure. I am hoping, my great hope when I engage with folks is that they learn within themselves how to be brave 
how to be courageous enough to take the risk and know that when you're working with me, I'm full of grace. This work is the work of grace. And it's not about know-it-allism. It's not about gotcha moments. It's not about proving how clever or how smart I am with my acronyms and words. This is very much about, for me, creating the containers, creating the conditions to let your own internal wisdom and values come forward. And then we can work to align them in a particular container. In Eric's case, it was around the container of meeting. And in my work, I'm often thinking and looking for the habits, the practices, the cultural artifacts that can carry this work forward. And meeting culture is a great place for that work to actually embed. So Eric's actually creating daily, weekly, monthly, new rituals, new habits that are going to create the preconditions to take off on human rights and equity. And in doing so, build real esprit de corps among his team, build true psychological safety, meaning people are safe enough to raise their hand and say, ouch, that's real psychological safety, which requires a measure of courage and bravery. Yeah, I love that idea of creating the preconditions in which we can all learn and grow. I think back to most of my career as a woman technologist, I've often put myself deeply into like cutting edge, leading engineering work, like never before been built work has been like the foundation for most of my career. And increasingly, even though my first team was 70% women engineers, because that was the age in which women were often engineers, it has increasingly turned into I am the only woman in the room. There was a time in which early in my career where that started to happen, where I was like, I don't feel heard. I don't feel like I'm getting what I need. People are not listening. I speak and I'm told to be quiet. And I started to say, like, all of this is being done to me. And there was a point in my career where I switched to realizing that everyone in this environment, all the men, plus the one woman token me, we are all learning from each other. And we are co-crafting an experience in which we are all going to learn to grow together or we're going to have a miserable failure. And we'll also learn eventually from that. So this idea of either growing together or failing together, and it put me into a different perspective around how to actually build true inclusiveness into my organizations was by being an active part in that relationship, calling out the situations that weren't conducive to building the organization, um, being willing to stand up and take a stand that isn't popular and building a relationship of like what I have to say is worthy and of value to this organization. And that really created a space where the men engineers, the male engineers in the discussion began to adapt to having another voice that they weren't used to hearing in that environment. And Etienne knows this about me. I'm often the only woman with a CTO background in the room. I've often been the only woman, the first woman brought in to an engineering organization. And I often leave those organizations about 
40% gender, 30% LGBTQ. People of color is probably the hardest thing to do in engineering. I've never quite mastered getting to norms with that one. But I think it's because of the take, the way I come into these spaces, like the containers you're talking to, and start to influence how that container operates together, realizing that it's not being done to me, but I am part of the ecosystem that drives change within that organization. Yeah, and I think the thing that comes to mind for me is without someone like yours's help, Erin, how does one create that container? I was also moved in a way by, you know, Eric speaking to his discomfort and pushing through that. Kathy stepping up and calling things out. I just finished Daniel Coyle's Culture Code book for the third or fourth time. I was really struck this time by his use of micro behaviors in order to affect culture. And I love, I think that's kind of what you were talking about, Aaron, which is with your help, Eric has been able to set those up and get those going. So I'm thinking in terms of lay people who all have their own biases, their own discomforts, their own hesitancy to broach the topic. How do you start? Where do you start? How many brown people do you have? How many white people do you have? How Look, many... it's the 1990s. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, thank you for that story and sharing that lineage. When you speak about being the only one in the room, that lands wonderfully on my heart. You know, and I was often the only man of color in the room in my professional settings. And there can be a fatigue. There can be a weightedness, a fraughtness around representation and the one representing the many, whether we want it or not. And as you were sharing your story, I was thinking about choruses and how choruses are very well organized, very trained. And then you can throw this new voice in there, you can throw it all off. But when that new voice is added to the chorus, the chorus becomes richer. And Eric's container is literally called Stronger Together. That is the term he came up with. And I see a great overlap between what you are sharing, Kathy, and what Eric is actually doing. Yeah, like where do you start? Beginnings can be tough. I tend to start by holding up a mirror. And letting the person, persons, or group across from me know that doubt, resistance, skepticism, fear is not only acceptable and a necessary part for many of us to grow, when it comes to human rights, it actually signals deep intent, deep values, deep principles. Unless you're just going to play the devil's advocate. If you're going to resist this work, and people resist it all the time, and I'm here for it, I invite that resistance in, because to me, it actually signals there's a story here, perhaps a story that hasn't been heard before, perhaps a story, particularly when it comes to majority culture, white folks, that hasn't been affirmed before. And the only way I know to get at that is through some sort of diagnostic process, some sort of audit process. They're all the rage these days. People in the human rights world have been undertaking social cultural audits for about 30 years. My academic background is in anthropology. Anthropology has been doing this work for another 50 years. 
So I take some of the standards that the United Nations uses on international development goals around equity. I pair them with anthropological methods and sources on how do you actually draw a person out. And I use that as a baseline to form a bespoke audit, qualitative audit, for people to complete. And when I receive that audit, I start to build a mind map. I start to build a mirror of what I am seeing come through these pages. We also have a lot of time together to talk about the audit. I will often write up the audit as a story and give it back to my client family member and ask them, does this look familiar to you? Because this rings very true to me. So I think setting the conditions for trust, to take risks, to iterate the journey is where I start. It's not like this. It's circular. We're professional humans, as I say all the time. It's all we've ever been. And to me, this is professional human work. And only then are we ready to actually take the journey. The journey is really unfurling and revealing for you what was already there, your own internal wisdom, your own internal values, and extracting them through story, through activity, through iterative reflection. There's a lot of metacognitive work in my approach. Again, as an educator, as a diplomat, I have found that it's metacognitive approaches that brings the tension down and makes things more sticky. And it's not really about being right. It's about getting wins. It's not really about where to go. It's realizing wherever you are is fine. Just don't stay there. So giving folks permission to take risks and to be brave enough to identify their values, share those values, and find ways out in the lived world, in your family, in your office, and your nonprofit, wherever, to put those values into practice to see if they're truly aligned with yourself and to see if they're actually aligned with the community need. I'm listening to you, Aaron. I'm seeing the distinction where DEI training could be the symptomatic. We need to see these pie charts and these percentages as an indication of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I love where you're taking it in a way, obliterating that concept in a way to say, listen, there's really about culture and how do we mirror that back? And then how do we get everyone to sort of relax that it's not about where you are, it's about whether you're going to move. And then, of course, taking it all the way down to human rights, this this colloquialism around these things. I think I know what human rights is, but do I know what it is? I think I know what DEI is. Do I really know what that is? You know, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect where you know a little bit about something and then you think you know everything about something and you actually know nothing about it. That's why this is such a rich deconstruction for me. And, and, and I love that it went straight to human rights. I love that it went straight to microbehavior. I love that mirroring and you're okay, move forward. I love all of that. So I, I want to get more into that meat. And you know, maybe Eric, you spoke about your journey how did that work for you? Yeah. You know, in terms of like majority culture, I tick a lot of boxes. I don't tick all. I'm an immigrant and English isn't my first language and so on. But I tick a lot of them. And I was into my 40s before I sort of, I really 
woke up to this thing. And of all the things, it was a joke inside the culture map book by Aaron Meyer that did it. And there's a joke in there. And it's there's two young fish swimming by an old fish. And the old fish says to the two young fish, hey, boys, how's the water? And they swim past and they're like, what's he talking about water? And I got to thinking about that. And I realized I'm swimming in water. I'm swimming in water of my culture. And I don't see it because it's exactly the right temperature and opacity for me. But then I started understanding that, well, the water is different from other people. What I find comfortable and easy and conducive to succeeding, others won't. They won't experience it the same way. So that led to questions about, well, gosh, if, if that's the case, what do other people need to succeed? And I started understanding that really what I'm seeing is like, you know, a vertical of humanity, right? Like the vertical that I'm in, in terms of the human rights lens of it, as employers, as leaders in organizations, I feel like the opportunity here is to say, well, how can we provide an environment where any harmless human can succeed? They might need different things than I need, and I can't possibly know what everyone else needs and memorize that and structure my team in that way. What I have to do is I have to go back to asking every single person and facilitating those conversations in a way that doesn't feel intrusive or that doesn't respect their privacy or, or asks them. The phrase, bring your whole self is kind of, you know, a lot of people say that. And I actually think that phrase gets to the power dynamic a little bit wrong. I don't want to tell employees, hey, you should bring your whole personality, your whole self to work. I want you to bring your whole humanness with whatever that is. Maybe you're a single parent, so you can't work in the mornings, or maybe you can't hear, and we need to use transcription on our meetings. Whatever the thing is, so that you can be successful, bring that. You're allowed to bring that. I invite to bring that, and we will do what is necessary so that the waters feel fine for you. So started with that little joke and I kept picking at it, kept reading books, ended up working with Aaron, still very much on my journey. Now I'm trying to translate it into behaviors in our engineering team that doesn't feel foreign or weird, but helps us get stronger together so that we are a team where any harmless human can succeed. I think a lot about how those behaviors, when you think of the swimming effect, those are really, to me, history that we bring from our culture and our family and our environment. These are all things that have been, we've lived in for so long that they become habitual, ingrained into our subconscious that this is how the world operates. Like many of us grew up for 18 years with our family in an environment that was this box, right? And the more those behaviors or situations around us are continually the same, they get ingrained into who we are and how we operate at a subconscious level. I think a lot about neuroscience and how much of what we do and say at any moment of time is all unconscious. The words that come out of our mouth, totally unconscious. It's the same for creating environments of inclusivity and equity and belonging is we bring largely the unconscious self to those environments. And this work is so important. I was thinking back to what Aaron was saying around the dialogue about why this is important. Though that language and our thinking there and the emotions we feel in that moment 
by articulating them, we bring them from the unconscious self up into the conscious. And that conscious is where all the powerful change can happen. You talk about bringing your whole humanness. I think part of bringing our whole humanness is creating also space for others to bring their humanness as well. And so often in the first early phases of trying to create an inclusive environment, I see a lot of companies focusing on just bringing yourself, bringing your whole self, bringing who you are. It's about you, 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 you. Reality, it needs to be about how are we co-crafting this environment together. And that means we all have to bring to our consciousness those habitualized behaviors from our past and then craft a new set of behaviors about how we operate in that container. And the thing that is so hard is it doesn't seem like there is safety in the presence of ignorance. There is not. There isn't. And I spoke with someone who is transgender the other day, and honestly, I was terrified. I was terrified that I would say the wrong thing. I didn't know about the pronouns. We ended up having a brilliant conversation. A lot of the loops in my head was sort of dismantled, and there was there was comfort. We ended up having a brilliant conversation. But maybe this is my South Africanness, or I don't know what it is. But I feel like there isn't, and this again could be me projecting, but is there safety in the presence of ignorance or bias or simple just being a doofus? I think about men making disparaging remarks about women, which when I hear that, I have a raging judgment inside of me, or I'm, I have such intolerance, and maybe this is what's going on, is because I have the intolerance, I feel like it is bestowed onto me. But just in a bit of a vulnerable moment, I'm just saying, it's, it just seems like what you're talking about, Kathy, with all that unconscious reinforcement and everything I've grown up with, how on earth do I feel safe to actually step out and say, well, I'm going to I'm going to say something that might offend, or what if I don't say this the right way? It feels very constricting. I feel safety comes in that beautiful moment when we move from your needs, my needs, and we're, it's about us expressing our needs. That is the unsafe place, right? We're still in the forming stage when we're both coming from expressing our needs. But when we move from my needs and your needs to our needs and how we can craft something together, that's where safety and trust is born. When we put aside us needing to get our way in something or to be heard about something, and we move to how can we co-craft something together to move forward, which is the blending of your needs and my needs. It doesn't mean that we are letting go of a piece of ourselves it's that place where we open and create something new together. And that newness together is where safety and trust is born. At least that's how I think of it. Yeah, I love that. And I'm, I'm dying to hear from the professional in the room, Aaron. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you see this a lot. I'm glad you're recording it because there's a lot of wisdom flying around our conversation. And again, like we are all pro-humans. Etienne, you just modeled to me, you just provided a window to me. 
for me to look through to answer the question, how can we get past this rub of safety, this high bar for safety, that majority culture? And it's a majority culture thing, by the way. I want to highlight the need for psychological safety in the spaces of equity. That's some white shit. I'm just going to name it. That is not what's going on in human rights. That's a requirement for majority culture. So while I absolutely agree that when I meets we, amazing things can happen, the we on this continent, in your sector, the we is a white we. And there is a very high ask for people who look like me to subsume the I to take on the we. And so it's not really about, for me, being your authentic self. That is a chimera. That's a mirage. None of us should be our authentic selves at work. Look, I swear, I listen to inappropriate music all the time. Like, you don't want that in the workplace all the time. I do want to look for spaces where I can be unapologetically me. And Etienne, you just showed a moment of vulnerability where you are unapologetically you. I have a 10-year-old trans son. I'm scared to death and I'm supposed to be professional. Mess up the pronoun, like, come on. It's really scary and really hard. The fear is a feeling that we can move through. I think often the fear is inappropriately sized because it starts to touch on shame, which I don't believe has a place in this beautiful work. To me, that lands, that's compliance. That's risk mitigation. That's HR. That's traditional DEI work. Then one of the number one things I recommend to majority culture is investigate active bystander approaches. You want to see how you can get out of your own way? Look at active bystanding training and how it's applied in the world. Because ultimately, We've all heard things and seen things that disturb our soul and our hearts. I believe what stops us from saying or doing something isn't fear. It's just not really being aligned with our values. But it is scary if you're waiting for the moment where the fear abates. Good luck. It's always going to be there. I'm scared every time I have an engagement. I was scared before this call. We're playing with live bullets. We're not making widgets here. This is serious stuff. I feel the bigger the fear, the bigger the dream. Sadly, the dream, bigger the fear. And so if you're going to be fearful about, I don't want to say the wrong thing, I don't want to offend, bravo. I say, that's great. Let's invite that in. What does it take for you to be brave enough at the end to share what's really on your heart, which is this fear? That's something incredibly important to me in this work is unlocking our internal wisdom and our internal courage and bravery to share a truth. The truth you just shared, I'm like shaking, Etienne. I think it's very powerful when we dare to take a risk and crack open our hearts and say, like, I'm really scared or I'm really angry or I'm really disgusted. What I think is profound for me in this moment is, is the fact that I have the fear It just is. Now, instead of sort of going to shame and denial and I shouldn't have this and others don't have this and I suck, why am I like this? Am I a racist? Am I a horrible person? It's no, that fear 
is the observation now can that lead to bravery holy moly right fear is a feeling that we can move through it actually could be a precursor to tremendous love i find as humans most things that animate move us there is an element of fear in there what i don't want to countenance in my work is shame There's just no room in this for shame for me. I'm, we did that in the 90s. It was called attending to whiteness. That is the actual discourse of what it's called. And it did not work. It made things even worse. We can't shame each other into shifting our behaviors. I don't think we can anyway. And I was raised Catholic, so I would know, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I would know. <laughs> wow. Eric? Yeah, I love that. We've got a really amazing container going here. This is how it's done. I think our audience is probably familiar with uh, Dora and Accelerate and DevOps. And so if I can geek out for a second, the book Accelerate talks about how important culture is for high-performing teams. I think, to me anyway, one of the central things the book teaches is that by adopting, for instance, continuous delivery, you can actually affect culture because continuous delivery will help you talk about failure and bring the pain forward and bring people together. And so continuous delivery is a technical capability that turns out can transform culture. So at the end, the project I'm working on essentially, and, and I don't have the final answer yet, but thanks to Aaron, I'm making some progress, is what capability could we add to software delivery practices and teams that helps us with this problem? What capability can we add where bravery shows up, where we have these safe containers without all of us having to wait for everyone else to go through the same journey individually, right? That's part of what I'm working on. And just to make this concrete, some things I'm doing. So for instance, in our team meetings, we rotate the facilitator of our team meetings. And so there's a fixed schedule of, of every team member and every team member takes a turn And they facilitate. Facilitating, there's a little guide for it. it. You don't need to know anything. You're just essentially starting and following the agenda. So a new hire can do it on day one. Anyone can decline to facilitate. And there's no judgment. And it just skips to the next person. And this helps, I think, because you're invited to contribute. You're invited to lead. You're invited to use your voice. And that's a small sort of capability we can add to simply invite people to talk more. And that is not awkward. It's not uncomfortable. And it feels useful. And I'm looking for more capabilities like that that we can add. And the thing I'm working on right now is, is this meeting where we're creating a team alliance where we can have this, which is a little bit bigger. I love listening to you talk about what you're doing, Eric. It just like my heart grows two sizes when I hear how you're applying these things. Yeah, I love the idea of just having a standard rotation. That's a simple way to bring equity into the conversation. Simple thing, simple way of doing that. And so. inclusion. Yeah, yeah I love and inclusion. About culture. So much of DE&I is basically like amateur anthropology. And I do notice there's a trend, a return to the social sciences, to see the wisdom that's there. And anthropologists, they often view us as tribes. And we belong to many tribes. And you could think of your workplace as a tribe, your politics, your community, your faith, your gender. 
we belong to many, many tribes. And typically tribes have four elements. And Eric is actually mirroring all four elements of what we are actually working on together. All tribes have a vision. It may not be clearly stated, but all tribes have values. Seven TTOs has values. Your organizations have values. They may not be stated clearly, but there are values and it's often left to the new hire or the person of color to like wade through and figure it out with the antenna. The other element is like the interest. What is your why? Which we often will shy from. Many of us will have a hard time really connecting the values of the organization to their actual individual why. And that's another opportunity for fear to bubble up. And then this is where Eric is really focusing on what are the habits, what are the practices, what are the rituals within your tribe that reinforces the vision, the values, and the what is your why. And then lastly, how does a tribe innovate? How does a tribe experiment? How does a tribe take on difference, skepticism, alternate ways of being in the world, i.e. people of difference? When you introduce a person of difference into the tribe, you are actually innovating and experimenting with your interests, with your values, and with your habits. When you bring on a person of difference into your tribe, I believe, most anthropologists believe, that you are actually unwittingly or wittingly experimenting and or innovating within your tribe by bringing on difference. And if you're not aware of how that difference may or may not comport, fit, match with your values, habits, innovation, vision, and interest, oh boy, you're going to have a big mess in your hands and it shows up in retention, right? That is incredible. Creates friction. There's friction that's formed in that moment. And the question is, do you allow that friction to allow you to evolve? Or do you see it as friction and therefore we have to push it out so that we can go back to homeostasis? Because we're so comfortable in our tribe, you add this vector from a different side, right? Like, what's your goal? Is your goal to evolve or is your goal to stay the same? And again, we need to bring that into our cognitive mind to be able to say, no, our goal is to evolve. And if our goal is to evolve, we have to intentionally make that decision. But what happens often is if we're only treating diversity as a checkbox, we're like, great, check, I'm done. I brought the junior woman engineer of color onto my team. I know I'm done. You're losing the ability to recognize that you need to evolve and adapt as an organization. I'm a firm believer that teams have a a personality, a way of being that is that unit. And now you've like introduced something that will change that and cognitively have to decide that we're going to change it or we're going to expel it. And so then the experiment is a failure because we've expelled it out. We've pushed it out. I can't tell you how many women, women engineers had to coach that they needed to leave the situation because the team wasn't adapting. And I'm sure you've had the same thing with people of color. You know, you are the foreign entity and and the body's trying to expel it. We need to realize that we need to incorporate it. And that's an intentional way of being. It is. And if we don't adapt and innovate as a tribe, we will metaphorically die. 
I look at the actual archaeological record of human existence. And when you examine the archaeological record, you find these fascinating trends and facts. And there is a misnomer, a myth out there that says humans have been fighting against humans forever. And that when difference meets difference, we fight. The record says the opposite. The record shows, especially back in the day when we were just coming out of them trees, 40,000 to 1.2 million years ago, when difference met difference, it was embraced because the tribe understood that difference represents an innovation for us. So the more difference you can onboard, the better we will all be, your bottom line, your soul, your heart, your organization. That's what really did it for me is when I started to really see in the lived world through the archaeological record that actually difference invites indifference in our humanity. Our humanity is coded to embrace difference, but there has been cultural sediment that's stacked up and we can't see that value anymore that Kathy so well articulated. And if we're fearful of difference, that's signaling something else. And we can work through that too. But I believe outside of a very small percentage of humanity, it's in our heart to embrace difference. It truly is. And when we don't, those of us who are of difference can feel like we're visitors. Like we're just tourists passing through the organization. I've experienced that more often than not. The culture won't yield to me. I have to like flow within the culture. But the culture, when it comes to equity, it can bend and flex to difference. And when it's too rigid, it can send a signal to people of difference that I'm actually not welcome here as my unapologetic self. In order to be fully welcome, I have to contort myself to fit this culture box, which probably is not built by people who look like me or experience the world as Kathy does. When so really, when really, your cultural lens. When that difference enters the system, it is an opportunity to innovate the team, innovate the tribe. It's amazing to reframe it that way because I think we've conveniently called it, oh, change management or sort of these organizational words that just categorizes or classifies something as a function of HR or a function of somewhere else. But if I see, I mean, it's a well-known concept that if you, you know, if you hire your VP of engineering or you bring in your director of engineering, the whole system changes and relationships that you thought were cool are all of a sudden changing and falling behind. But what I think is amazing is instead of saying to Kathy's point, the body is going to try and get rid of the foreign object, which the system seems to be designed for, we say, listen, how are we as a team going to reinvent and innovate when difference or when change enters into our tribe? And having that conversation as the fourth pillar that you mentioned of a tribe I bet you 0.001% of teams are even having that conversation. And that is an empirical number. I think the thing, Etienne, to remember too is that is, I'm sure. Also, like they aren't having the conversation, but you can't just have the conversation once. You literally have to build new habits. And so it is a dialogue that needs to continue meeting after meeting. Like when Eric talks about building new meeting structures, it's like you have to inject the structure 
around that meeting, not just the actions that have to happen into it, but the environment in which it operates and the goals that it's meant to achieve. And then you have to put that into action for like sometimes one, two, three months before the whole organism starts to adapt. And I think as leaders, this is why it's really important for us to have clear values, clear way of being, clear way of talking, clear way of acting that is consistent so that we can influence the environment over time through our consistent way of being. That's such an important point, Kathy. So many of us in North America, perhaps in tech, I'm not a technologist, but I do have lots of friends who are. I feel that tech in most sectors in North America, it's it's a go-go. We're just we're moving fast. Go, 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 go. And I get it. You know, I'm a good capitalist. I'm a good Westerner that way as well. I see progress. There's something unique about this work that it's iterative. It's iterative. We're not going to get it done in a month or three. It could take years to change culture and embed the habits required for equity. And I love that. It actually, as a leader, it can make one humble. And it can really reveal the limits of our power and influence. And we don't have to do everything today, as long as we know that it's not checkbox, it's an iterative approach. And as long as the trend line is going the right way, beautiful things can happen. Back to archaeology, when we discovered that human development is not like this, this is not how it works. It's like this. It's called punctuated equilibrium is the theory of human development. Long periods of seeming inaction punctuated by spikes of high activity. That is the nature of human development. I argue that is the nature of human rights work is a slow cadence. And then there's a spike. And eventually, the culture starts to catch like a flywheel. And it starts to become auto-generative. That is such an important point that the traditional DEI gang will miss. That's putting in the training into practice. The training I can give you, and boom, it's done. Here's your training. But now you have to iterate through practice. And that's where the actual magic happens and the behavior shifts can be seen. Well, I think this feels like a part zero one. I feel like there's a part zero two, zero three, zero four. I love this so much. And just even in this conversation, unwinding some of the thoughts that I've had has been incredible. So Eric, Aaron, Kathy, thank you. Can we do this again? Absolutely. Yeah, this is so much fun. I love it. Thank you so much. I will see you soon. Bye-bye. Peace. Thank you.